and welcome to Tape Heads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tape Heads is the podcast where we select a VHS tape from either my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch it, and then we talk about it. Mm-hmm. Sadly, we are out of the Halloween season. It's over. But we went out with a bang. And the thing is, horror movies aren't seasonal, so we can do them whenever you want. Yeah, but are horror movies set at Halloween seasonal in your mind? Like, would you throw on Hocus Pocus or no, Halloween I... H2O just any time of the year? No, definitely not. But there are plenty others to choose from. That's true. That's true. And I'm sure we'll get to them soon. Yeah, and we have to make way for Christmas movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got some, some big Christmas episodes planned for December. We've already chatted about it. But that's past business. Let's move on to current business. Lindsay, your turn. What did you pick out for this episode? Walt Disney's... Beauty and the Beast from 1991. This month is actually the 25-year anniversary of its release. Quarter century of Beauty and Beast. I feel like if you were growing up in the 90s, this was classic, really. Oh, yeah. I had flannel sheets that were Beauty and the Beast sheets. You had this clamshell VHS... And you would wear it out, and it was uh, right up there with Aladdin and Lion King as one of the great Disney Renaissance films. And The Little Mermaid. And The Little Mermaid, yes. People put other movies in the Disney Renaissance that I'm not really... Like, they occurred at the same time, but I don't know if they really count. I would say that I really liked The Rescuers Down Under, but I don't know if it actually counts. Yeah, so this is interesting because I always knew that it kicked off with Little Mermaid, and we talked a little bit about this with Chloe on the All Dogs Go to Heaven episode, but I knew that that Little Mermaid was them saying, hey, we're back, we're gonna do this again, but I never knew that it was so set. There's a Wikipedia article specifically on the Disney Renaissance that says it's from 89 Little Mermaid to 99 Tarzan, and I think they just arbitrarily include rescuers down under because it was the second in that yeah. time period i also feel like it ended before tarzan tarzan had a really great soundtrack that sold really well but Some i think phil collins i think oh yes oh yeah and they had glenn close in it but otherwise i don't think it was so awesome well it's certainly better than pocahontas or pocahontas is hunchback of notre dame or pocahontas is actually pretty I never saw good that I, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's all of it is better than Home on the Range, the Roseanne Barr cow movie that they made. Well, that's what killed off traditional animation for a long time. Until yeah, Disney the... was like, this is our last shot. Let's do Roseanne Barr and a bunch of cows. What were they thinking? On an adventure. And it's like, okay, guys, when you look at Pixar, who you work with, and you look at the stories they give us and how well they're doing... Why would you go with Home on the Range? It's funny because I always thought, and maybe I'm just being naive here, but I always thought that things like Emperor's New Groove and Lilo and Stitch, I always thought that was part of the same sort of canon. Those really made a splash, and I thought they did pretty well. But I think the expense of making them versus the amount of profit they were able to glean from it, just I guess it didn't quite add up. Just a, like, weird trivia tidbit. There is a TV show called Stitch in Japan where instead of it being in Hawaii, they're in Okinawa, and there's this other 
Japanese Okinawan girl that is hanging out with Stitch. Wow, and that's exclusively in Japan? I think so. Is it the same animation style? Or? Yeah, it's the same style of animation, pretty much. Like, it's made for TV, but it's kind of like the TV show that we would see, like the TV show version of Little Mermaid that I watched when I was growing up, too. So before we get too heavy-duty Beauty and the Beast, uh, this is our very first Disney animated film. Yeah. So, somehow we... <laughs> Somehow we got a Don Bluth movie to sneak in beforehand. That was the their main <laughs> competitor in the 80s and early 90s. They had American Tale and The Secret of Nim and all that stuff, so they were a pretty big competitor. Where does uh, Little Nemo Adventures in Slumberland fit in? Is that neither Don Bluth nor... Neither. Interesting. Yeah. We went really out of our way to avoid Disney animated I movies. Think, I think for me, I, I've been thinking since we started this podcast about what Disney animated movie I wanted to start with, and I actually considered doing The Little Mermaid instead. But really, this movie is dearer to my heart. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And so I thought that Beauty and the Beast was a better launching point. Okay, okay. But before we get too carried away... You got some trailers. You racked up some trailers this time. Got four more. And we got the after the credits trailers again. Yeah, that's so interesting. I I don't remember that being a thing. I think because no one bothered to watch the trailers after the credits. We forgot that there were supposed to... When we first watched this the other day, we forgot that there were trailers after the credits and we didn't even bother to watch them. I think in the early days of VHS, they were a little sheepish. Like, uh, is it uncouth to put... Not ads for other movies before the movie like is that kind of raising the middle finger to people who bought our film on VHS and yet by the time DVD came out they were willing to make it impossible for you to skip or fast forward <laughs> through the ads they would force you to watch the ads I felt like there's always a way through like doing the chapter button or something oh god but yeah uh, no surprise we kick things off with the original Aladdin and when I say original I mean the 1992 the... so not the sequel yeah, not the sequel. Not, not We're not talking Return of Jafar or Revenge of Jafar? Return of Jafar. Return of Jafar. Beauty and the Beast came out in 1991, and then the VHS would have come out the following year. Yeah. So the year that Aladdin came out. They leaders. even make a point of dating themselves so much that they say, coming to theaters, 1992. <laughs> Aw. I guess to make sure that you, if you watched this movie the next year, that you don't think you need to go see Aladdin in the theaters. Yeah, there might have been a lot of frivolous lawsuits. <laughs> you wasted <laughs> my time. I called movie phone. Aladdin was a huge movie to me growing up. I think that at the time, that was my favorite of this cycle. Well, probably because um, it, it might have had some of the most appeal to boys... Of those initial, like, big three. Yeah, I mean, I loved Beauty and the Beast. I wasn't as crazy about Little Mermaid, but I still liked it. But I would dress up like Aladdin. Like, I no. I would take a cowboy vest from another costume, and I would take... Was it a little denim vest? Uh, no, it was like a little felt vest, a little Aww. brown one. Okay. Uh, almost screen accurate. And I would also take a mushroom container, one of the styrofoam ones, and uh -huh. put it on my head. <laughs> and then I'd have long pajamas and I'd 
just sit on my magic carpet, <laughs> aka a uh, Afghan. Oh man! That I was very taken with this film. Well, my brother had Aladdin sheets. I had my Beauty and the Beast sheets, and he had the Aladdin sheets. We were very much into the commercialization of the movies we loved. I only recently found out that Robin Williams is not the voice of the genie in the sequel. He is in the third. Wait, what? In the threequel, he is. But the second one, it's Dan Castaneda who does Homer Simpson and many other Simpson voices. Oh, weird! Yeah. I never realized that. Although I didn't like the sequels, so I probably didn't see them very often. But I, I might have seen the second one. I never saw the third one, but the third one he actually came back for. That's funny. So I don't know. I guess kids just didn't notice, but I'd be interested to see some footage of. Uh, I mean, think of all the things we didn't notice about um, <laughs> the Ninja, the Turtles. Ninja Turtles. Yeah. <laughs> they did complete cast changes with every movie. Redesigned the turtles themselves. Kids notice nothing. Splinter is pretty much a badger puppet or dog puppet <laughs> by the last movie. And then we uh, we get another ad. Um, this is still in the pre-film ads. We get Sleeping Beauty. Oh, yeah. This is not really a movie I grew up with, to be honest. I did. Yeah? Yeah, I really liked the fairies that she lived with in the forest. I thought they were sweet. Whatever. Maleficent, maybe she became big later, but I feel like a lot of people seem to know her character, at least. I know a lot of the visuals from it, but I'm uh, not as familiar okay. with the, the movie. Yeah, I think it's Sleeping Beauty where they based the castle on, an, on a real castle in Germany. Now, uh, if you just want to watch the trailers, you can fast forward over the movie and catch these next two. We got a 1940s Pinocchio mm -hmm, from kind mm -hmm. of that classic era. Being released from the Disney vault. Yeah, that, the Disney vault was a funny thing. Yeah, which I mean, they still do to that, some extent. That's the epitome of just creating demand through limiting supply. Oh, yeah. We were talking a little bit about Pinocchio, and neither of us really have that fond of memories about it. No. Although I would like to see it again as an adult. I feel like I would appreciate it a lot more as an adult. As a kid, I thought Pinocchio and Dumbo were the worst Disney movies. Maybe not the worst. I also didn't really like The Sword in the Stone. There was something very depressing about both yeah. Pinocchio. He gets to be a little boy at the end, but it's almost a little too dark and real for a while. The world of both Pinocchio and Dumbo is so oppressive mm -hmm. that you almost feel like what little gains are made aren't quite worth the ordeal that the characters went through. Yeah, I also was not a fan of Bambi. Yeah, I'm not, I don't think I really was either. And I was all over anything animal. Like, any kind of animal movie. You make an animal talk, and that was my thing. Yeah. I like Snow White. Snow White is great. That was one that I liked, and that one also is kind of dark. Yeah, and speaking of kids not knowing any better, they re-released that in the 90s in theaters. And when I saw it in theaters, I was just kind of like, oh, it's the new Disney movie. And I had <laughs> no idea that it was, no, it's the first animated Disney movie. That's so cute. And then lastly, we have, I guess, another one coming out of the vault, uh, 1961's 101 Dalmatians. Oh, yeah, that was a movie I loved. And I actually, I liked the live action version partly because it had the guy from Dumb and Dumber in it. And Wait, that was a, Jeff Daniels? Jeff Daniels is in the live action version. I don't version. remember that, and I remember seeing that. Um, so is... Well, Glenn Close is Cruella de Vil. Yes. I know that much. And, um... 
Hugh Laurie from House is also in it as one of the bumbling buffoon bad guys. Oh, interesting. But anyway, as a kid, I thought it was great that Jeff Daniels was in it because I knew him from Dumb and Dumber. And speaking of uh, The Simpsons, they did a great send-up of it. Do you remember that episode where Santa's Little Helper has a whole ton of puppies and it's all musical? I didn't... I and they even connect that that was and a they even spin-off of it. They even spoof Be Our Guest from Beauty and the Beast uh, with See My Vest. <laughs> it's it's pretty great. We're going to have to rewatch that. I have, I probably haven't seen it since it aired. Let's let's get into Beauty and the Beast. Tell us about this film for the one or two listeners out there who haven't seen it. Well, it's essentially a story of a bookish young woman who's living in a French town that just kind of feels like there's more out there and there's something more interesting than the day-to-day simplicities of a village life. And so she kind of dreams of more and she dreams of these great adventures that she reads about in books. Then she ends up getting to live one because she, to save her father, she switches places with him when he gets imprisoned by the beast. And so she kind of goes on this exploration of what is love, what is friendship, what is family. Everything about life. Just learning it in the castle with a beast. Not just the beast, but a whole assortment of Disney-friendly inanimate objects come to life. Oh, uh, yeah. You got your Cogsworth, who is a clock. Lumiere, the candlestick, who is always my favorite. Mrs. Potts, the teapot. And her son, Chip. This is one of the things. There are loads of teacups. And it's like, are those all her children? <laughs> or is her... And then Chip is her favorite because he's the only one that she talks to. Now, the, this thing about the uh, inanimate objects, in the original story, none of that was there, right? No, it was an invi- invisible servants and things would just appear. Yeah. And it's funny because I think that that's an attempt to soften it with all these like fun, lovable people. So it's not just this big, empty ominous castle with an angry beast but you pointed out something that is kind of disturbing about the implication of all these inanimate objects come to life which is that so the story starts telling you that this young prince was approached by an old woman and he he refused to give her shelter and it turned out the old woman was really a witch slash fairy who put a curse on him and his entire staff (laughs) So you happen to work for this guy, you're getting turned into a clock or a candlestick. Yeah. Possibly it's, forever. It's your fault that your boss sucks as a person. Not so even... you get cursed for the rest of your life. And look at maybe actually having your existence go into nothing. And you're kind of frozen at that age, too. Yeah. Because Chip was a little kid for what like 19 years or how many years was were they stuck in this i can't war? remember did they tell us how long it's been so to go from the beginning they say when the rose's last petal falls on his 21st birthday and uh he has to find true love to love another and earn her love in return wait it falls on his 21st birthday how old is he when this curse is cast on him then i don't know if they oh you know it they do say because they they claim that it was 10 years later so i guess he was just 11 when it was cast on him but he looks like a hot young prince in the stained glass story well lives were shorter back then (laughs) this also explains why the beast is so awkward with beauty he is like an awkward teenager. And he's, like, they're having to coach him on how to interact with another person, another human being, because he's such an awkward, weird teen beast. 
throws a lot of fits, he slams a lot of doors, and there's a whole wing of the castle that has been torn apart through various tantrums. Including a portrait of himself, a portrait where he looks like he's at least 17. I -hmm. feel like, I feel like he's, maybe time has slowed down in the castle. It could be. Maybe time, okay, here we go, yeah, maybe time doesn't pass normally in the castle, because think of how much time seems to pass with Beauty and the Beast bonding while her dad is at home after they've traded places because it seems like for her dad it's only been a few days whereas for beauty and the beast it seems like it's been weeks yeah so maybe there's some kind of unspoken change of the passage of time they also remove things from the original story including uh, siblings siblings yeah Yeah, bell had a, a ton of vain siblings kind of in the cinderella mold she had three pretty traditional brothers i guess they liked hunting and horses and dogs and which then her... gaston kind of takes the place of i feel like probably well gaston i think was more inspired by the film the french film version from the 1940s where they oh. had like an, a bumbling um lover that suitor was a suitor or... yeah she had two vain older sisters. I'm wondering if Disney cut them out, one, to save time, but also because they would have been too similar to the sisters from the stepsisters from Cinderella. Yeah. So it would have been a little bit of a retread. Instead of being a former baron, her father is a this weird inventor that's also sort of an outsider in the village. Totally kooky old man that everyone in the village makes fun of. Yeah. And it's interesting because when he comes back from the castle after he's traded places with beauty, he's in an absolute frenzy because he's so concerned for his daughter living with this giant murderous seeming beast and so he goes into the town and he's ranting and raving to everybody about this beast and they kind of decide to do maybe he needs to go to a sanitarium and part of that is in Gaston's interest because he wants to force Belle to marry him because he's an awful awful human being but it's also probably because you know in those days if you seemed a little off they just shunt you off you know I think part of the reason I mean maybe this is just obvious but I think Part of the reason Belle holds up uh, so well in comparison to all the, you know, other Disney princesses Mm -hmm. is because she is sort of this nonconformist character. And she's kind of a feminist in some ways, while not sacrificing, like, traditional femininity in a weird way. Like, it's it's kind of weird because when I was watching it, I was like, is this a feminist movie? Is it not? Because it seems to go back and forth. Just kind of in the ways that she's fantasizing about princes and different all these different kinds of stories of knights and things. It's kind of like towards the conformist edge. But then you have her refusing Gaston, who you would assume any of the other girls in the town would fall for because he's buff, he can provide all of that stuff. And she's just kind of like, no, I don't need you. I'm fine on my own. And it's only when the hyper-masculine beast shows his sensitive side. That she's overcome with love, (laughs) with little birdies all over him. Despite the beast resembling our cat, Mimi. (laughs) (laughs) I think think he's supposed to more resemble... I I was kind of debating what the influence for him was. Maybe a combination of a large, ferocious dog and a bear. Yeah. He's kind of a, a bear dog. Yeah. You know, I have to say that in in other, uh, I think in, there was a silent film version of the Beauty and the Beast. There have uh, been a ton of there versions. There have been a lot of different versions. I feel like it wasn't always traditional for him to be furry like this. I feel like no. in other ones he was just 
cursed with like poxes and boils like the beast in in his furry you know muscular form is still like a pretty good looking guy i know that's the thing where i was looking at this and i was like you know he's not that he's not ugly he's not that terrifying he's very soft and friendly but at the same time disney had to make you believe that she could fall in love with him right that's true it's funny because I was looking at the Wikipedia for the original story and they had illustrations that weren't necessarily original from very early editions of printings of the original story by Beaumont, who isn't technically the original author, but I think she's wrote one of the most famous versions um, in the 1700s. But anyway, in the illustrations, he looks more like an ogre goblin sort of demon. Hmm. Which was kind of an interesting take because I've always thought of Beast as a furry beast because of the Disney film. And I think there wasn't there an 80s TV show where he was a furry beast. Um, Oh, was that with Linda Hamilton from The Terminator as Belle? Yeah, it had Ron Perlman as the Beast. That predated this film. So that also might have had a little bit of an influence because Ron Perlman looks like a lion, sort of. He's got kind of the long 80s hair. Well, so does Linda Hamilton, for that matter. Yeah, they have very similar hair, actually. And was that that was that a period piece or is that set in modern times? Because her hair looks very firmed out. I've never watched it. I think it was modern and it's. It, I think it's the one that's more influenced the most recent TV show for Beating the Beast. The one that was on in the last few years. I found that a lot of the humor of the film came from Gaston. (laughs) Well, yeah. On this watch of it, I don't know if I felt this way as a kid, but I loved all of his sequences. Just his, like, horrible, braggadocious nature. The way that he's drawn, like, just muscles on top of muscles, and he just sort of wants to possess Belle because she's the most desired woman in the town without really knowing anything about her. Well, he's funny because he he acts it's it's weird because he's conforming to societal expectations but in a really creepy icky way that and that makes it funny because he's kind of like turning it on its head a little bit and he's the primary villain of the movie which is really interesting because i feel like in another era this would have been like the prince charming but because it's the 90s they're able to actually sort of analyze that a little bit well and you were saying that you think this might have been informed their choice with the guest on might have been informed with um yeah so in the mid 80s into the woods which was sort of a you know, musical deconstruction of fairy tales. They had this character, uh, Cinderella's Prince, who I played in a middle school production, (laughs) um, who kind of was Gaston in my mind. I mean, there was also a Rapunzel's Prince character, but he was a little softened. But they were both just way over the top, chest puffed out, (laughs) hyper-masculine, but just horrible people, really. Yeah. And just kind of missing the point of the story that they themselves were in. And to the extent that Gaston, you're kind of rooting for him to get killed off <laughs> in a Disney movie, and he does. I think he's the only death in the film, isn't he? You know what? I think you're right. And they don't make it super clear that he's died, but he he, falls he plunges into a, pretty far. Yeah, a deep ravine. So I think yeah. he's dead. I think that's the way Disney usually killed off their bad guys. They just kind of fall. I remember Scar sort of <laughs> suffers a similar fate. Everything takes me back to Ninja Turtles because I'm remembering the third movie <laughs> where that guy falls and then you just see him disappear like it was the worst 
cinematic effect Why ever. Why they didn't just cut away to a reaction shot of <laughs> Raphael or somebody going, ugh, in a splash noise? Oh, if you really man. don't have the money to drop someone into water. But this movie had money. It oh, was yeah. beautifully made. One of the first hand-drawn animated movies to incorporate... Uh, computer-generated, three-dimensional seeming imagery. Yeah, and it was actually one of the early um, films to use new software that was developed by Pixar for Disney that enabled them to do a lot more with computers, including painting, because a lot of the, the inking and painting was done by hand. But they had this new software from Pixar that allowed them to do not only black inking, which was what they they were kind of limited to before, so they didn't really like using it for their films, but this one actually ha- gave them a range of colors that they couldn't otherwise achieve, um, and so that was kind of cool that you're seeing this kind of early influence of Pixar, too. And you were saying it was, uh, it was a process where they would do the keyframes, and then there mm-hmm. would be a whole other team that would be sort of the in-betweeners. Yeah. It was sort of this assembly-style thing. People were assigned in teams to particular characters. You can tell that the work on the Beast is absolutely phenomenal, like his sense of movement and everything, and it, I, I think that's in large credit to Glenn Keane, who was the head animator for the Beast, and he had worked on, like, the Fox and Hound. He had done the bear the work on one of the bears and a badger in that film. He was the lead animator on Ariel and Little Mermaid. Uh, he was the lead animator for Aladdin in Aladdin. Oh. Um, so he was definitely one of Disney's number one guys and one of my heroes. It's amazing to me that hand-drawn animation, I mean, they, these productions would take a couple years. Well, what's interesting is I had assumed that this production took them at least three years to create because typically they take around four years. And then when we were looking at it, um, they had started work on Beauty and the Beast. They were in the planning stages and writing stages in 87, but they actually ended up scrapping what they were working on in response to The Little Mermaid because Beauty and the Beast was not going to be a musical. It wasn't planned to be a musical, which I had never known. So had it not been for the success of The Little Mermaid, we would have a completely different film. And so it's interesting because typically have this four-year process. And so because they ended up scrapping everything, they had to compress the entire production, writing, and everything into two years to meet the expectation of getting it out by their deadline, which is insane. Titus all over with rescuers down under in the meantime. (laughs) And it's amazing because Aladdin was out the very next year. Was it just completely different teams that were working on different films concurrently? I think it's because there's so much overlapping process in this, which actually the writing was also a kind of newer thing for this film because normally they did everything through a storyboarding process and that's how they figured out the story but for this one they hired a screenwriter but anyway it's it's all done in so many different stages that i think that's how they're able to do some films concurrently too and again so many teams it's insane and they they actually had multiple studios working on this film so it wasn't all done in a single studio either Another iconic thing about this is this soundtrack by Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these songs, it's just hit after hit after hit. Just, I don't think that there's a single song in this film that is not memorable, does not move the story forward in a yeah. meaningful way. And that was the thing that they really managed to do with Little Mermaid, Aladdin, and so many of these other films, too. Um, 
And it's kind of funny because, like, they really have staying power because I've gone on multiple hiking trips where we got through the monotony of hiking along trails up mountains by having the whole group singing along to Disney songs that we had all just known by heart. And it was songs from these films. Gotta give a nod to the 90s with them having Celine Dion singing at the <laughs> during the credits. Which took me totally by surprise. For some reason in my head, I, I thought Celine Dion really exploded on Titanic and didn't really have a, another thing comparable to, to that. But uh, here she is showing up in the end credits of Beauty and the Beast. Oh yeah. And then they really smartly pulled people from Broadway like Paige O'Hara and Angela Lansbury which just adds so much to this film because there's you've got the actual leads singing rather than having to recast a singer for that. This was a huge commercial and critical success to the extent that it was the very first animated film to be nominated for best picture and this is before the days and there were 10 nominees for best picture there are only five and before You're actually selected yeah, they didn't yeah. want to give it away to, to everyone it was exactly twice as meaningful to be nominated for best picture and there was no animated film animated feature film i should say category until 2001 oh i didn't know about that yeah. that's interesting yeah shrek was the very first to win in that it was a new category why it took them so long to do that i'm not exactly sure but that just to me says that this is a film that transcends the box of being just an animated film and just a yeah. great film period and, and it's interesting because i always kind of worry a little bit about watching these movies because things i love as a kid often do not live up to my memory of them but i absolutely and loved watching this again there's something very timeless about it the one that i'm worried about revisiting is aladdin just because i know some of Robin Williams's shtick will be very 90s. Like, I know yeah, for a fact... Yeah, it's gonna be a little dated. I know for a fact he says things like, made you look, and, like, little things that, like, <laughs> what does that even mean, you know? And I guess that's where this has a little bit of an advantage, because it's kind of removed from the 90s. They couldn't make it completely 90s. Yeah, yeah. Although Aladdin's a period piece, too, and they managed to, uh, have a lot of 90s stuff in it. Oh, you can never control the Williams. As we saw in Fern Gully. God. I just can't imagine <laughs> the hours of audio they had to get through. And they clearly just felt too awkward in studio because they couldn't get him to say the lines he needed to say. He was just riffing on everything. So they just didn't know when to make him stop. Oh, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall for that. Almost as much as Tone Loke's uh, recording sessions on Fern Gully. Oh, God. But it's funny that you mentioned Shrek because that... Shrek I was thinking about during the transformation scene at the end where we think the beast has died. Beauty finally realizes I don't love you as a friend. I love you as who you are in a romantic sense. And then he transforms into a real boy, a.k.a. a very handsome blonde man. And it's kind of funny because during the transformation sequence, I kept picturing the transformation sequence or it's what you think is a transformation sequence in Shrek where they're doing this kind of like, I think Shrek, Shrek was really kind of looking at this when they did that because Fiona in her ogre form, doesn't she, she floats up and there's a lot of shininess and it goes on way too long. And then you find out that she's just staying as an ogre. And I don't know if that was kind of like commentary on this as in, 
It's been a long time since I've seen that film, but that would make sense to me since that's sort of a send-up of these sort of stories. And it's kind of interesting that she stays in a, as an ogre, whereas the Beast changes into a man, because Beauty fell in love with him as the Beast. And there's this kind of sense of she's being rewarded for having this kind of selfless love for somebody that you would that you would think no human being would ever love. And so she's being rewarded. He's turning into this handsome guy. And um, I don't know. resembles someone completely different. Who's completely different. And it's just you. I kind of wonder what message that sends to. Like, why couldn't they have lived together as human and beast? As beast and wife. (laughs) As beast and wife. I mean, they never have kids. That's true. They could have some weird interspecies stuff going on i mean the the really redemptive thing i think in the ending is that his whole staff gets to become human again which they deserved in the first place they did nothing wrong i mean he barely did anything wrong he just had sort of i mean just imagine being punished for at least a decade because your boss is a shitty person. Your eleven-year-old boss is a shitty person. If if he was eleven, I I think I think there's the, an the argument. timeline would suggest that he was eleven. I think there's an argument here where time passes differently in the castle. Although then that doesn't make sense because it seems much longer that Beauty and the Beast are together, whereas in real life it's only a few days. So then then you would think time is passing much faster there. So that doesn't make sense. The cutoff is his 21st birthday, so there's definitely a... I'm confused here. I, there's yeah. some, there, there are some it's gaps It's best not to here. think about it. <laughs> I think it's just one of those things you can't think too much about. Because at first I was like, oh yeah, no, time moves differently, but then it would be faster, and that definitely doesn't make sense. Maybe we found one hole in this film. <laughs> At least one. All right, Lindsay. Well, this is your pick. Do you buy it, rent it, tape over it? Oh, buy it. Absolutely. This is a great film for everyone. I would say buy it as well. I was really surprised how much... I mean, I was expecting to enjoy it, but it really is just a timeless, great film of this classic Disney Renaissance era, and it's a very hard film to find fault with. I I found myself enchanted throughout... Yeah, there's really not too much to find wrong with this. And they even have kind of social commentary like we saw with the talking about addressing a sanitarium and people wrongly be, wrongfully being placed there against their will, that sort yeah. of thing. Like there's there's kind of, kind of some interesting edges to this film too that are unexpected that make it interesting for an older audience as well as the younger audience that would kind of miss those details. I really like the non-conformist message behind it, for sure. Yeah. Just a love story between a couple weirdos. And an awkward teen boy figuring out how to talk to girls. Oh, yeah. All right, Sean, what have you got in store for us next time? Well, I'm uh, doing a children's movie myself next time. Wait, what? Yep, yep, a little bit of a surprise. Uh, We'll be doing Tom and Huck. Oh, JTT is back, huh? With his friend, the late Brad Renfro, R.I.P. We'll we'll try not to think too much about that as we watch it, because that'll be sad. We've gotten a few films on here where people died well before their time. Yeah. This is one that I've been meaning to revisit for a long time. Uh, from the early days of this podcast. Uh, obviously, big Mark Twain fan. Really looking forward to seeing how this mid-90s interpretation holds up with our 
good friend Jonathan Taylor Thomas. <laughs> I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can find more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn more about Tapeheads on our website, tapeheadspodcast.com. If you have any questions, please send them our way by email at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear your feedback. Please review on iTunes. That's it for Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time. 